Hello and welcome. My name is Alonda Carter and I am the Recovering Hunbot and this is season one, episode 19 of Hey Hun, You Woke Up. This podcast is brought to you on 10 different platforms, including Spotify and Stitcher. There's also a video version available on YouTube, which is on my YouTube channel, which is the Recovering Hunbot. Today, I am chatting with John Atack. John is a former Scientologist. He joined at the tender age of, I think it was 18, and he was in Scientology for nine years. Upon leaving Scientology, he was labeled a suppressive person or an SP. Since that time, John has gone on to write a number of books, as well as become the world's leading authority on Scientology. And just so you know, the interview ends kind of abruptly due to technology issues because of Zoom, and I don't know if people were on it or what was going on, but it just kind of like literally goes out, and hopefully editing Alonda will be able to make it a smooth transition, so we'll find out. The good news is, though, that John and I are going to get back together and chat again. I mean, honestly, there's so much that I can talk to him about. He's utterly fascinating and so incredibly knowledgeable when it comes to destructive groups, destructive cults, whatever name you want to you know, place on that. So join me and welcome John to the program. Before we get into the interview, <laughs> fooled you, didn't I? I wanted to share with you the restaurant that my husband and I supported during this worldwide crisis this past week. It was my birthday this past week, and I asked my husband to go somewhere that we haven't gotten their food in quite a while, but the place is called Velvet Taco. Velvet Taco is available in Texas, Georgia, and Illinois, and it's absolutely delicious. I mean, very, very unusual tacos, and I never really thought about tacos in this way until I went there and tried them out, and what can I say? They're just great. I usually get the brisket taco, which is just delectable. And there's also this other steak and egg one that I get that I really, really like. My husband typically gets the um, chicken and waffle one, and he loves that. Now, when you go there in person, you can like, you know, actually eat at a restaurant instead of doing the takeout thing. Um, They have fabulous mimosas and also very different margaritas. And usually they kind of have, their margarita flavors change, I guess, kind of like depending on the time of the year it is and everything. So anyway, if you've never been to Velvet Taco and there is a Velvet Taco near you, I highly suggest that you try it out. And now let's get on, you know, with the interview with John. Hey, John, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. And I'm so thrilled to talk to you because you have such a wealth of knowledge, knowledge, if I can talk, not only about Scientology, but overall about destructive groups, cults, whatever you want to call them. And you have, you've really helped transform my life in terms of getting back to critically thinking and being able to start unraveling what I was involved in, which was multi-level marketing and specifically Beachbody. So today I wanted to talk to you about how what people learn in Scientology might be able to help them as a leader in multi-level marketing, because as we were discussing before we hit record, that I have undergone something where there are someone who's a former Scientologist, if I can, again, if I can talk, um, that is involved in a multi-level marketing organization, but also has a kind of a coaching business and a 
course to sell people. And they've come at me hard since December 2019. So I'm opening the um, floor up to you. Okay, you've opened the Pandora's box on Scientology. Um, yeah, it, it, I, I mean, my own experience was I was on the periphery of Scientology for nine years. I was not completely immersed. I was not what's called a total convert, largely because I didn't work for them and therefore uh, I wasn't abused and humiliated. And um, they wanted what little money I had, so they were generally nice to me. And it, I then, I left in 1983 um, and spent a dozen years helping people who considered, you know, that Scientology had affected them badly. And over the next dozen years, I saw about 500 people face to face. I worked on 150 court cases, a couple of hundred media pieces, uh, wrote a the only history of Scientology, I think it's the only history of any post-war cult, actually, um, that sell these people a piece of blue sky, and became more and more interested in, you know, having done the history, and I, I worked as a researcher for a biography of Hubbard called Bareface Messiah by Russell Miller, who's a fairly famous biographer and former Sunday Times journalist. And, you know, I'd, I'd looked at Scientology and its history, I'd looked at Hubbard and his history, and I then wanted to know why was it attractive? How was it that um, people, highly educated people such as yourself, could, could be lured into a group like this? Because the further I got away from it, the more I sort of looked at it and went, it's crazy, it's crackpot. You know, it, the things, things that I believed for nine years, it, they just, it just became more and more foolish, really, you know, until you end up with you know, 75 million years ago, the inhabitants of 76 planets were rounded up brought to earth, blown up in volcanoes and, you know, their spirits clustered together and packed into people and given 36 days of implants, which curiously all focused on the fashion and style of 1966. You know, that everything that Hubbard found out was that it, it added up to this year when he discovered OT3, curiously. Since then, things have moved on. Um, but... That was all implanted, along with Jesus, according to Hubbard, which is one of the things they don't generally tell people. They say we're eclectic, you can belong to any belief system and follow us. And then privately, he, he said that Christ was invented. Christ was a fabrication. He had similarly unpleasant things to say about many uh, you know, behind closed doors when nobody was listening. But I then became fascinated through the 1990s in, you know, what is, is common between these groups, what usually happens is you're involved in a group and it's a unique experience. And when you leave, you know that you had that unique experience. So when you meet somebody who's in the Moonies or the Mormons or any other group, it's a different experience, you know? And it, I think it's part of the hangover of the elitism, particularly with religious and therapy cults, some commercial cults too that sense of being superior to other people and, and not being willing to just simply admit that we're all human and we're all prone to exactly the same um, things in, in life. I came to meet some of the celebrated people in the field, among them the late Margaret Singer, who is a professor in psychology at Berkeley. And um, she, in fact, in the 1960s, put forward the view that the people she was the veterans she was seeing come back from 
the Korean War in the 50s, displayed the same symptoms as battered wives. And as far as I know, she was the first person to identify this and say, well, an authoritarian experience is an authoritarian experience. If you're bullied and humiliated and forced into submission, then it is the same experience. I, you know, my essential study was, was terrorism and seeing that, uh, and not, this was in the 90s, this is before 9-11. So part of it was um, the Al-Aqsa brigades in Palestine, for example. But I was also very interested in the Tamil Tigers, Sendaro Luminoso, the Bader-Meinhof, the Red Brigades, and seeing that the dynamics of these groups well, like if, if you put a pseudo-religious group on one end of the spectrum and you put a, a gang, a criminal gang, like the mafia at the other end, that in the middle, you've got terrorism. If you mix these two things together, you've got the fanaticism that, that's inculcated in a destructive cult group, plus the viciousness of a criminal gang. And indeed, I then went on to study gangs and found that they too have the same... Um, and you know, same dreadful dynamics that you find. So I, I look to people like uh, Robert Cialdini and his wonderful book Influence, um, to Robert J. Lifton and his his work on the thought reform model. I, you know, I met Steve Hassan thirty years ago, and um, we still are regularly in contact. Um, and I became interested in that part of the puzzle. And part of that was also multi-level marketing. Um, I had my own experience when I was about 17. I had a week working for an Australian company called Golden Chemical Products, um, who basically sold cleaning agents based in coconut oil, saponified coconut oil, as do most of these, these groups. And sometimes their stuff is actually quite good. It's just, it's expensive relative to what it is and you've got yourself into a pyramid where people are being abused then when i was in scientology a friend of mine who was not a scientologist showed me the plan uh, for amway and you know i'm a scientologist and i'm looking at this thing saying this is a cult you know this amway thing and then a few years later uh, another friend who was actually uh, never been involved in Scientology, but was involved in criticizing Scientology. And she bought into uh, a group that were selling, American group, I don't remember what they were called. They were selling quite good soap products, um, but within this structure. What got me with Amway, and I only, I didn't go to any of their meetings, was the fervor. It, it was this, you know, getting people so that they were really worked up about this. And you know, when you take parallels with that, you'll find it in the military. You'll find it, it's something that good commanders do to their troops before they attack the enemy, knowing that some of them are going to die. You can rouse this, this feeling in people. And it's a feeling I've never had, personally. You know, I, I've never gone, yeah, because I'm in a group of people. It's just, you know, and I've been in I mean, it was at the Isle of Wight in 1970 where there were 600,000 people and it was great, you know, but it wasn't great because there were lots of people all feeling the same thing. It was great because 
Jimi Hendrix, The Who, Rory Gallagher, Joni Mitchell, Miles Davis, The Moody Blues, Chicago, all played there. And Santana, mustn't forget Santana. Um, but I did, you know, I do notice that when groups of people get together, many of them seem to relax back into being part of a group identity. So I read Gustave Le Bon, The, the Crowd, the, which is the originating book of um, crowd psychology and, you know, back in around 1900. Uh, Mussolini gave a copy of it to Hitler. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, when president, actually made a detour when visiting France so he could meet Gustave Le Bon. So you have this incredible character who basically said in any crowd, the intelligence will be the level of the stupidest person. You know, that's what will, that's what happens. Now I don't take quite as pessimistic view of humanity as he did, but I do understand why he got upset. Um, and I, you know, I began, to, I absorbed as much as I could from these things to then go, this is just normal human behavior. We are, We're not as smart as we like to think we are. And uh, I was thinking today about a conversation. I interviewed a young man who at the age of 18 was on the governing body of Scientology. There were 14 people on it. It's called the Watchdog Committee. And they answered directly to Ron Hubbard. This would have been in 1982, I think. And I was, you know, I had two kind of... 30 of interviews with him because you know he was very concerned about what might happen to him because he knew what happened to people because he'd been right at the top and he was 19 when I interviewed him so he'd been an 18 year old running Scientology and Hubbard had issued this directive only to the watchdog committee saying it's no good I can't stop world war three from happening and it's going to kill everybody the I think I can probably save you 14 people and that's it didn't know that was happening in 1982 did you oh um, my god no <laughs> world ended and we are in a simulation um and so he being a, a savvy young man basically went to i'm leaving because if i don't want to hang out with these 13 people and run up it i'm going to my mum and dad who you know brought me up in scientology and i'm going to do that At the end of our interviews he he said to me the great thing is we'll never get conned again and I just looked at him and said, no, no. The great thing is I realize I'm gullible and I test everything against that now. You know, why do I believe this? You know, why, why do I want to give this person money? Um, and, you know, and I wait before signing contracts and I don't tend to join organizations. You know, they're all of these people out in the counter cult world. I never joined any counter cult groups. It was me what I was finding out, people who needed help, it, it never got into any kind of organisation. But having said that, I was nominally the president of FactNet for a year because my friends, Lawrence Wallersheim and Bob Penny, found that Jerry Armstrong, who was the first president for about five weeks, he had to go back to Canada because of all the harassment he was suffering in the US. So they asked me to do it. But that's as close as I came to an organization. I had nothing to do with running it. And it just meant I got a lot of things thrown at me by Scientology because they thought I was running it, but there you go. But it, it, it gave me a certain caution in about my own capabilities, about my own ability to understand what was going on around me. And 
you know, generally, we all know that advertising works, but it works on other people. It doesn't work on me. You know, I chose these products because I, I've researched them and, and they're good for me. Um, uh, until you can, you know, get, get the telescope so you're not doing that, the um, fundamental attribution error, some psychologists call it, that we, you know, if I'm late for a meeting, it's because there was traffic. If you're late for a meeting, it's because you're trying to annoy me. And we, there is a tendency for people to, um, for us all, to think of our own actions in a quite different light to anybody else's. And it's not a good habit because if we wish to be make intelligent decisions, there's only one quality that we need to have above all qualities, and that's humility. And it doesn't come naturally to us, you know. You're sitting there wrapped, so you know. <laughs> I'm just. I was really fascinated that you. Well, number one, you mentioned the Sendero Luminoso because I studied them uh, as well when I was in grad school. So I was like, oh, there's just another connection because I I had been thinking about them as I've been doing my own you know research into everything, and also I've started you know studying the um, the history of religion in the U.S. and looking at all of this interconnectedness. And so it was very fascinating to hear you talk about the extremes. And I also studied gangs when I was studying sociology. So all of those things, I was just sitting here nodding going, yes, I see what you're talking about. And all of them because of my own personal background in it. Because I mean, one is very similar to the other. It's just like a, it's just wrapped slightly different with a slightly different bow and, um, but underneath it all, it's very, very similar. And I think you brought up something very important. And that is that whole idea. Well, I'll never be conned again because I now know this stuff. And that just isn't the case. And you then connected it to advertising because I've been noticing like right now with what's going on in the world, there's these extended payment plans for cars being advertised in the U.S. right now and all of these other things, the underlying buy our stuff and we're doing this for you, but they're all using the same tactics that in, you mentioned, and I never say his name right, um, Saldini, and I have his book right here, and how influence works. It, it still works on us. It doesn't just go away just because we realized that we had been in a destructive organization and we're now on the other side of it, that doesn't mean that we are no longer human and no longer susceptible to all of these things because it comes at us all the time. So of course, we know we are, but like you said, we like to think we're not, but we're not quite as brilliant as we would like to be. And I think a lot of people coming out of multi-level marketing, at least that, you know, I've been, observing and interacting with people want to think that it could never happen to them again. And they also want to hold people who are still in it. Um, especially people, if they're higher tiered in the group, hold them accountable and um, just pick them apart. And to me, it goes beyond the people who are at the top. It goes to the people who actually created these companies and the structure of them over the person behind, the man behind the curtain, you know, Oz, the great and powerful wizard, so to speak, that is orchestrating everything because everyone else is just kind of a puppet to all of that in, in my point of view. And, and there's a certain temperament, um, you know, before we started recording, 
talked a little bit about the, you know, Scientology specifically seem to recruit, seems to recruit salespeople. And I mean, my dad was a, he was an export manager to various companies, which meant he traveled all over the world, but he was a salesman, you know, and he was a lovely guy too. But if somebody wanted to sell something, he was, yeah, he'd buy it, you know, and that it, it's often said of salespeople that, you know, it's easy to sell them things. And I think we, we have a division in our society. I've, I've from time to time criticized um, the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I, I think, I think Dale Carnegie was absolutely genuine. I, I, you know, I don't know a great deal about him, but I could be wrong, but it, it's not one of the usual con manuals, which are, which, you know, it is hard. an MLM. It's, it's well, one of the personal developments. It's definitely part of it. Yeah. And because what happens is if you are, what, what's being described in there is a normally a naturally empathetic and kind person. And I think Carnegie may have been such a person. His family have certainly managed to live off it ever since. Bless them. Um, and it's, you know, it's been well revised and, but the problem is this, if you are a genuinely empathetic person, you don't need to read that book. If you aren't, then it teaches you how to pretend to be a gen- genuinely empathetic person. And I think that is the division in our society in the last, you know, since public relations started and advertising started coming on in the late 19th century, early 20th century, that people pretend. And so, you know, if you're a Scientologist, you're trying to recruit people, everyone you meet. If you're in an MLM, you're trying to sell stuff to people, everyone you meet. And it puts you at a distance from people that, that there's no longer a genuine desire to help people. Though I must say, you know, I, because I believed in Scientology, I believed it was helping people. But I also know I'd, you know, I'd get 10% on their counselling and 15% on their training if I sold it to them. And it, it you know, it, I've... I was, I was in uh, many years ago, it was 1988, I was in Washington, D.C., and there was a Ghanaian cab driver. And I said to him, how long have you been here? He said, eight years. I said, What's the, what would you say is the biggest difference between Ghana and America? And home, if anything went wrong, everybody was there to help you. In the U.S., they have welfare. And it was, you know, I was being told something really striking about... You know, and it's, um, you know, I couldn't vote Republican anyway because I don't live there and I wouldn't. But I probably wouldn't vote Democrat either, frankly. Um, but politically, what's important is how do we create community? You know, this difference, I think it, I'm told it works better in German, but I don't speak German. There's a difference between community and society. And we have these plans that, that are faceless that are not about actually getting people to collaborate, getting people to work together. And so we have these false groups, which actually devise ways of recruiting and directing people. And when I started looking at uh, recruitment and seduction techniques, it fascinated me that I could look at pickup artists, for example, and the things they do. I could look at a hostage negotiator and the things they do. Uh, Chris Voss is very good on that subject, who's the head of the FBI's hostage negotiation team. Um, I can look at the Al-Qaeda recruiting manual 
I can look at Scientology's dissemination drill, the Mooney's way of, and you find there are just a few things that you have to do, and they're all about selling. They're all about selling. It's slightly different with hostage negotiation, but what you have to do, first of all, is create rapport. So you basically pretend to be somebody's friend. This works in advertising too. I think it was, I can't remember if it was campaign or advertising age, but a few years ago, they reviewed the top 100 selling ads of the year. And they said 11% of them had some sexual content. You know, they had somebody good looking in or what have you. 89% didn't. You know, contrary to Edward Bernays and popular opinion about sex selling. And the majority of high selling ads, I think it came up to about 50%, had one element in common, and that was humor that you befriend somebody by sharing a joke or a story with them. Look at the way at the, I don't know if it's happening in the US to the extent it is here, but television advertising is all companies telling you how much they care about COVID-19 and they hope you're keeping yourself safe. And you go, this is copywriting. You know, yeah. it's not them sitting at home and worrying that, that we might get ill. It's copywriting. And it's what's wrong with our society, this fake compassion. Um, I agree 10,000% because yes, we are having that, like how much we care about you. It's like, well, I think what you really care about is if we buy your stuff. That's what you want is us to buy your stuff. It's always about buy your stuff. Um, And my husband and I, when we're walking the dogs and whatnot, I mean, we have jokes back and forth to each other about all of this because we always go, it's buy my stuff. You know, It's, it's very evident to me. That's what they're trying to do. But I also, it's like, there's a part of me, it's like, that it feels good for someone to appear as if they actually care, even if it's not genuine (laughs) caring. And I think that's part of the trick right there, just like with salespeople, just like with con artists, just like with people who are good at recruiting to get people to join an MLM, there's the illusion of somebody is like you. And, you know, we talk about in multi-level marketing, no like, and trust, you know, you have to have the no like, and trust factor. And you work on that to develop that rapport, like, you know, like what you had just mentioned. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, I mean, all of this is like, you are speaking the language that, I, that I've known. Yeah. And the, the, the like is, is the rapport building. The, the trust is the authority, um, which is the next phase and which is where hostage negotiation differs from sales and recruiting because to develop authority. If I sat in a room with a Scientologist, I know that telling them that I'd done the fifth operating Thetan level is for most of them, it's going to sit them in their chairs because so few of them, you know, these days I think it costs about half a million dollars to get that far. I, in the course of nine years, spent 9,000 pounds. That was my whole spend. Um, But, you know, things got, by the time I finished, they were pretty pricey. I spent half of that in the last year. Um, but it gives me authority, status and rank immediately by having that thing. And oh, Were you OT3 or OT5? OT5. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Um, the, I have the ability to give Scientology my money. That was the ability I gained doing all of that. Um, eventually, I decided I didn't want to give them any more money which was good for me. But I've met people who've spent 
hundreds of thousands. I, I met a woman who'd spent a million pounds, so $1.3 million on Scientology. She said to me, I always wonder why it was that it took me so much longer. So with hostage negotiators to develop authority, they don't use a status trick. They disagree with the person who's taken the hostage. That's, it's a turning point in negotiation that the person will ask for something and the negotiator will say, I can't give you that. And at that point, they take authority. It's a psychological moment because if, if the person accepts that they can't be given that, they've actually put the person above them. A lot of this is actually, Yuval Lohr's work on um, attachment, uh, which he chooses to call love, which I think is a much better, better word, though I think it still needs quite some defining wherever we go. But he points out that we all see that the, the leader of the group is the father or mother, the parent in the group. Um, that's, you know, doesn't take much thinking. The fellow members of the group are your siblings. Um, and indeed, all of our friends are adopted siblings within the, you know, he is working within the evolutionary development model, which is definitely, you know, the, the vital investigation of, of evolution. As he points out, most people who are involved with evolutionary psychology, so-called, are actually using a model of evolution that was abandoned by biologists about 20 years ago. So they, you know, even epigenetics is difficult for them. Um, Dawkins Dawkin seems to focus utterly on natural selection through random mutation, the selfish gene, and seems to be dismissing sexual selection or cultural selection, which, of course, both Darwin and Wallace had in their original model, um, what used to be called the Darwin-Wallace model until Wallace was dropped from the, the pitch because he, he just wasn't, you know, he wasn't up to it. He was a working bloke. He wasn't born into money. You know? He had to go and go to dangerous places where people died from being bitten by the animals he was selling to people back home so he could think and find his way through it. But um, evolutionary development says, well, there's not only is epigenetics relevant, which is to say that something can happen to me that I will pass on in my DNA to my children. You know, the good old Lamarckian idea, which was destroyed after Darwin and has now come back. It doesn't mean, you know, if I cut my finger off, my children will be minus a finger. It's more likely that um, if I overeat, that I will pass on something that, that messes up the metabolism of my children or grandchildren. You know, there's some pretty good work on this now, uh, where people who really don't eat very much put on weight because the metabolism is not functioning properly and you trace it back to a grandparent who massively overrates so your ghrelin-leptin balance and your digestion doesn't function or something like that. Um, but there's a fourth aspect of evolution which is, has become really interesting, which is symbolic. That because we have language and have developed a culture out of that, we can actually alter genetic alter ourselves genetically we can actually alter the expression of dna because dna can be switched off and on as we know genes can be switched off and on and so we're living in this this remarkable situation that that by interacting with technology in the way we are and by interacting with these 
malevolent groups in the way we are, it transforms us biologically, you know, let alone psychologically. We're actually part of this astonishing ongoing creation, which is humanity. And as far as we know, there is no other species like us uh, because no other species has language. It may be that some of the whales are talking to each other a little bit, but uh, nobody seemed, you know, although, what is it? We have 40 sounds in human language. Whales have 400, but nobody's managed to decode them in after, you know, great hopes in the 1960s and 70s about that into language. It may be that some of the other primates have basic forms of language and it's the, uh, there's a form of gibbon that's reckoned to have 10 noises, which actually indicates something. So if there's an eagle coming, they make this one noise, but they don't know if the noise means there's an eagle coming or get under a bush. It could mean either. And there's another one for a leopard, which, or, which could mean climb a tree. You know, but that's the, the vervet gibbons. They're long ago observed doing this. But when you come to having languages that like the Chinese and English have two million words in them, you know, you, you're into a whole other realm of meaning, which becomes difficult and awkward because we all have our own experiences that we add to those meanings. One of the things that fascinated me, I became very interested in Robert J. Lifton's work. Um, got uh, the one I recommend to people is this, Destroying the World to Save It, about Om Shinrikyo. I have that one. I, I have this one. Yep, I, I have that one as well. <laughs> and that was, that was the work by him that I first read. I mean, he is a remarkable intellect. Um, his um, last book, which is a, a series of um, extracts from his earlier work and comments that he's written about it, is yet again quite, he, he's so incisive. And I realized that if you took his, and he does say it in Thought Reform published in 1961, he says that the eight characteristics he's observing are not something invented. They're something that's natural to human beings. So if you take, for example, the cult of confession, the need to talk about our sins as they're regarded in Christian culture, there's, there's no similar idea in Buddhist culture, which shows, again, this is a symbolic thing that develops differently. But that we want to talk about these things. I have many times sat on a plane or a train and had somebody tell me things that they certainly wouldn't tell the people in their social set but they're quite willing to talk to a stranger about it. So there's a kind of need to confess. There's also in confession a need to exaggerate. So that I'm sure if you went to revival meetings and saw the same person going up and confessing to sins week after week, the sins would, would increase. You know, our history, history changes. Um, well, I have to ask you about this, because talking about confession, that makes me think about auditing and then um, Scientology. And do their confessions through auditing become more exaggerated? Well, as they're confessing to things that they did in past lives, um, they, they become utterly invented. And that's not to say, 
you know, there may be some proof one day of, of reincarnation. I haven't seen, nothing's convinced me yet. And I believed in it. I was a Buddhist when I became involved in Scientology. Uh, though the view of reincarnation is a little more subtle in Buddhism than it is either in mainstream Hinduism or in Scientology, because there is no self involved, which is a very confusing notion. Um, but you know, putting that aside for the moment, um, people will, in Scientology sessions, you're always looking for the earlier similar incident. And that means that in almost anything but the security checking, confessional or integrity processing, depending you know, what form, the same lists are used in all three forms. Um, whichever, so whichever one you're doing, the, the, in anything else you do in auditing, you'll be looking for something that happened in an earlier lifetime and people wander off into this and you can, re, you can construct a new personality this way. You know, many people will believe that they were intimates of Jesus Christ or Muhammad or um, whoever. Um, and I had my own problems in that way too. You know, it's inevitable. Um, but from there, th this urge to confess, this urge to talk about ourselves and our wrongdoing, this, this kind of narcissistic focus, which of course is, you know, Hubbard got it from Freud and Freud got it from Josef Breuer, the, the um, Anna Fonneau case that begins the Freudian myth, as I like to think of it. Um, and Breuer does this work on Anna Fonneau and he basically is asking her for these traumatic incidents. Um, it's all thoroughly described by Freud in a lecture given, I think, in 1909 in Worcester, Massachusetts. So two years before Hubbard was born, somebody described what would later be called Dianetics. It's in the third lecture, the Clark Lectures. And in there, Freud says, this is what we did. And to anybody who's been involved in Scientology, you're going, so you count from 10 backwards and then you watch the thing. It's, it's what Hubbard described in 1950 in his Dianetics. But at the end of the lecture, Freud says why they stopped doing it. And um, what he says is it doesn't resolve the transference. It doesn't change the way you relate to other people. You don't become an adult in your relationships. In fact, quite the opposite. It makes you more dependent. What he didn't admit was that Anna von O, after her treatment by Josef Breuer, was signed into an asylum because of the, by Breuer himself because of her addiction to morphine, which had been prescribed by Breuer. So sometimes you have to dig a little to, to get into these things. But that sense, you know, it was very much, it's only in the last 25 years, 30 years, that we've moved to looking at behavior rather than history in therapy. Um, because in the 1990s, some quite frightening work showed that debriefing, talking about traumatic incidents from the past, can actually make things worse. You know, it can actually fix you on the condition rather than the cognitive behavioral approach of saying, well, how, how can I better deal with that situation if it arises again? You know, how, how can I better react and how can I not spend my life thinking about all these horrible things that have happened to me? But we, we like to tell stories and then the, the biggest story we have to tell any of us is about our own life. Because Absolutely. That's, and a narrative, you know, that is what distinguishes the human animal. We have narratives. And we can't help it. 
you know when you I, a friend of mine uh, uh, he was actually giving me a, a ride from LA and uh, he, he turned up and he looked really tired and I said hey you know, what, what's happened he said well I got back to the motel and I switched the TV on and it was halfway through this movie and I just had to watch it to the end <laughs> kind of and it was an old kind of black and white movie that and we do that you know we we get caught up in the story and along we go. Absolutely. And you mentioned something about the transformation. I wanted to talk about that a little bit because that's because um, I've definitely looked at some of Singer's work and I believe it was Singer that talked about like the personality before the cult, the personality that develops while you're in the cult and then afterwards. And it's like, and then you don't know how to like reconcile all of that. And so within these different groups, because there's also the loaded language component, and that's definitely part of the MLM, and good night, is it part of Scientology? I mean, <laughs> could there possibly be more, you know, confusion of words? Two 500-page dictionaries. Two 500-page dictionaries. Are you kidding me? No. Oh, my God. That no. is insane. Okay, I, I thought dealing with the acronyms from the Army was tough enough, but that is crazy. Holy moly. This one, which is the technical dictionary. And um, let's, let's see how many pages it has. It has 577 pages. And oh, just behind my computer screen, I have the other one. Just, you know, I, I like to be prepared for interviews and so have the books off. <laughs> so uh, I see. I, I use it as a stand for a computer screen. It's very handy. And this one. Modern management technology defined, which is, let's see if we spoke sooth about the pages in this two, 576 in that one, and 677 in this. Okay, in my opinion, if you need that many pages to describe something, it's problematic. I mean, that, that talk about reinventing of words. And I think that's what's so interesting is how all of these groups take a known word. And I'm just going to pluck out from Beachbody because when you become a Beachbody, when you join Beachbody, you become quote unquote, a coach. And people get so twisted by that word because mm -hmm. they're not personal trainers. There's no training or anything. It's just a stinking word, but it means something within Beachbody. It means something else to the rest of the world. And all of that, it seems like being around it is, as you were talking about, is something that does transform who you are fundamentally because you are encoding all of these things in a different way than what you knew before. Yeah, I mean... Um... Margaret did write about um, the construction of personality, but the two sources that I'm familiar with, and, and they, they both happened at the same time. Um, Steve Hassan in 1988 in Combating Cult Mind Control wrote about the, the pre-cult personality and the cult personality. The same time, um, Dr. Louis Jolly and West, Jolly West, and... Um, I, I met him, I think I met him four times, but we spent hours together each time. And I've been censured because he apparently worked for the CIA and things like this. But um, that's certainly not the man I met. You know, the man I met was a very empathetic and incredibly educated and well-informed man. 
he wrote a he was the head of um, neuropsychiatry and biobehavior at UCLA Med School. So you know, which is a and he he'd written 180 papers and you know just all of this stuff. And he he was a very unique and fascinating individual. But he published a paper I think in the same year, and they knew it. They knew each other, but neither of them knew that the other was writing about it. And he talked about um, pseudo identities and said, and I kind of think of it. It's sort of like my cat's just decided to come upstairs. I I think of it in in slightly different words to some other people. For me, a personality is a whole thing and it is comprised of identities. And the identity that I display will be to do with who I'm talking to. So if I'm talking to Lucy the cat, I will use a different language, the language I would use to my children or somebody who wants to hire me or a guy who's doing the plumbing. We have an identity and it, can shift in even in the the way we pronounce words so that typically where i live many people have two different accents so they have the way i'm speaking now is what's called received english but i came from a place where they talk like this so that and it's quite normal that people will if they meet somebody from another dialect group will shift into received if I'm, I actually have spoken received from birth, of course, but I grew up in a place near Birmingham so that there was a Birmingham accent there, like Ozzy Osbourne. And um, Lucy wants to come and see what's going on, I think. Um, that is a part of identity, that we express ourselves in those different ways. We also express ourselves, there she goes. Rare, a rare appearance from Lucy there. <laughs> Hello, Lucy. <laughs> usually very quiet about these things um that the other aspect is our mood how we're feeling emotionally that when when we're angry we'll express ourselves differently from when we're feeling chilled out uh, when we're bored what have you turn on a sixpence you can can't you yeah. you only come here and say hello <laughs> no oh, okay she's adorable to. she is she is no two ways about it and she has a she's very smart she has a very sweet temperament but um she's sensibly cautious uh, she had a brother who wasn't sensibly cautious sadly <laughs> is no longer with us who was just the most affectionate animal i've ever met i didn't know that cats could be affectionate you know i i kind of think of them as uh, fundamentally narcissistic sociopaths you know <laughs> They're so beautiful that we have to serve them. Isn't that right? Anything? Just like going out and killing things, don't you, basically? Getting free food. But yeah, she's very soft as well. I've had her since she was 10 weeks old. And oh. I thought that, you know, her fur would, in the adult phase, could never possibly be as, as soft. But it is. It is. So, well, she is um, adorable. She is. And, it, and she has that... that you know, she has that lovely little smudgy face, don't you? I, I, I wonder what we could do genetically, you know, if we could get something as big as a tiger and get this pattern on it, you know, that'd be quite good, wouldn't it? But it would probably lovely. lead to a documentary series like Tiger King, <laughs> which would scare the living daylights out of a school. Did you watch that? Weird, Pete. 
I watched the first two episodes and then decided I didn't want to know about these people. <laughs> As a study of cultic belief, Nazism, how astonishing. Yeah. Know? People say I'd, I'd kill her, but I've just sent her a viper in the post. <laughs> yes, that's the snake. Yes. <laughs> I, I watched the whole thing and it, it was, I guess I can just say entertaining, but also disturbing too on many levels. You know, I'm just like, yes. But it, it really was something that took hold of this country that everybody seemed to have. And, and you know, what's really funny is in the beginning of my videos, and I used to say this when I was a classroom teacher, as I'd refer to the students, I'd say, hey, cats and kittens. And I've done that for many years. And Carol Baskin, who was part of the Tiger King thing, she says, hey, there, you cool cats and kittens. But I mean, and now people are going, are you doing Carol Baskin's like, uh, no, this is just actually how I talk, you know, <laughs> have for years. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So uh, what, what Jolly was saying is that there are all these threads which are your identity. He didn't like to use the word personality because of the way it's used in multiple personality and uh, a condition that he had a tremendous scepticism towards as a psychiatrist. He said that every case he'd met had been induced by a therapist. Um, really? I mean, since now it's swung back and we're now talking about dissoci dissociative identity disorder. Right. Um, which is pretty much the same thing. And, you know, the psychological psychiatric field remains completely divided on this issue. Um, but however it is created, you, he wanted to differentiate a person who has a personality which is comprised of many strands of identity. You, know, you could do an X, Y graph, which is who you're talking to and how you feel, and that'll be the identity you show. And what happens when we become involved in an authoritarian group, and that, that is my preferred term, a group that has authority over you and whose authority you accept. Um, an undemocratic group is another way of looking at this, generally, that you will, it's as if you take in a kind of vampiric, parasitic identity that will lead you to conform with the norms of the group, with what is considered normal. So you adopt the language, the dress style, um, even down to the, the way people walk. And it, there were, I watched people, uh, when I was involved in Scientology, there's a course called the St. Hill Special Briefing Course, which generally takes a couple of years for people to do. And on it, you listen to hundreds of Hubbard lectures. And I just kind of noticed that people I knew were sounding more like Hubbard. You know, they were picking up speech mannerisms from him. Then I saw some written work which looked exactly like Hubbard's handwriting, which purported to be messages from the mothership where Ron Hubbard was, as transcribed by Captain Bill Robertson, uh, one of his loyal devotees, who in fact started the what has become the largest independent Scientology movement, uh, the Ronsorg, or the Free Zone, as, as he dubbed it. And Bill had written these things, and I, this is, I read them before I met Bill and realised he was a lunatic, and they looked exactly like Hubbard's writing. And... 
that's what happens, the, the process of cloning. You have the uh, Flavio Yakely, who wrote The Discipling Dilemma, which is available free online. He was asked um, by the um, Kit McKean at the Boston Church of Christ, which is the founding group of the various churches of Christ. I think they threw McKean out in the end. Um, but McKean was offended that his group had been called a cult. And so he asked Yakely to come in and personality test members. I believe he tested 900 members and he got a shock. You know, I, he used something probably like the Myers-Briggs. I don't personally give much credence to any form of personality testing. I think it's a very slight way of estimating a human being. I think the same thing about intelligence quotients. I, I think it's the ability to pass those tests. And I don't say that because I've failed them. Honest. Um, but Yakely then became very interested. So he interviewed some Scientologists, some Moonies, I think it was, and some members of the Way International. And he interviewed members of mainline Christian churches. And what he found was that there was a tendency to one personality type in each of the groups we would recognize as destructive cults, whereas he found all 16 in the Christian congregations. And that led him to use the word cloning. And I think as a concept, a good group is a group in which you develop your own identity and a bad group is in which you, a group in which you develop the group's identity. Now, wow. there's that, a kind of problem. That oh. is totally fascinating. That's, that is utterly fascinating. But it, it makes sense to me that you would take on those dynamics as your own. And because we as human beings, we want to be accepted into groups, into whatever group we've joined. And what better way than be accepted as if you act like other people. And, and at its worst extreme, you have something like the Bo Peep cult, commonly known as the Heaven's Gate cult, where the men were castrated mm -hmm. as part of the thing. And they all ended up dead wearing their uniforms and in their body bags because they transported to the Hellbop Comet. You know, um, Applewhite taught where I went and got my undergrad. <laughs> he was gone before when I was there, but um, I'd walk by the music department and know that, yep, he had been in there teaching before I went there. Um, uh, yeah, I remember when all the Heaven's Gate stuff went down, and that's quite frightening that somebody can change themselves so much to take on a belief system to where they take their own lives. I mean, everything that they, and I've recently watched some things on Heaven's Gate too, because it just came into, you know, how things just come into your bubble and you just watch documentaries or whatever, and it's just been on, but um, very fascinating. So let me ask you this in terms of people taking on the norms of a group, the language of a group and becoming that personality. But I kind of bring it back to these people who have been kind of hounding me because I've been a critic of um, their webinar, which then is by a course, which is join a particular MLM, which happens to be a water filtration MLM. How is it that if you leave a group, which in this instance, um, one of them allegedly 
is a former Scientologist. And I would think they would take part of that Scientologist personality with them, even if they've left the group. And then they join another one. How does that interplay and work with them um, basically kind of creating their own kind of authoritarian type group? Because they definitely, from my perspective, have that as the way they've been able to manipulate people to attack me online. Well, I think the first thing is, is that Scientology is incredibly invasive. Um, when I was visiting the US in the 80s and 90s, um, while the Cult Awareness Network still existed as a, a real group rather than aspect of Scientology, who, who bought it after it was bankrupted in a case that they'd funded against it, um, one of 54 cases they funded against it. We managed to fight all 53. But people at, at the Cult Awareness Network would say to me, you know, we deal with 2,000, maybe 3,000 different groups. But the one group we just can't get a handle on is Scientology. The, the complexity of it. So transcendental meditation, you've got two techniques. Scientology, you've got 2,000. Um, they're variants on seven or eight different basic techniques. But you have this immense thing. And you can't expect to be involved in that for years and walk away without it having had any effect. The same would be true of, you know, the give me a child until he is seven and I will give you the man. Um, it's not actually tr true. It's the age of 13 probably where kids go through the most change, but that's another question altogether. Judith Rich Harris's nurture assumption is very well worth reading on that subject. But you form a character and because we are not self-aware, that's the one thing you know, which we were talking about at the beginning. We're really not self-aware. Uh, when we look in the mirror, we see a reverse of our own image. We don't see ourselves. And we do project ourselves into the world. Um, David Copperfield by Dickens begins, it remains to be seen if I shall be the hero of my own life. And uh, I've never managed to finish the book, sadly, and I should because he's a brilliant writer. But, you know, the BBC have, have done all the things. I don't have to read the book. I did read Great Expectations. That was fantastic. But... It remains to be seen if I should be the hero of my own life. What a statement. Claude Dennett, who's at the centre of, for me, the loathsome breakdown of psychology that's been going on in the last 30 years, but he nonetheless talked about the self being the centre of narrative gravity. This idea that I'm at the middle of the story that I'm in. And it gives us the wrong perspective so that Somebody has however many years of profound indoctrination with these ideas and then they walk away. Well, what happens? Does, does it just heal and go away? Well, my experience is not. I was driven out of my criticism of Scientology. I was steamrolled uh, for 12, year, 12 years of harassment. And eventually I just went, there's no money for doing what I'm doing. Uh, you know, I'm having to fund it. Um, and it costs a lot. Uh, the courts aren't going to protect me because, you know, lawyers are about something other than justice. You know, let's be honest about this. Um, they are champions for their client. They're the ethical basis of it. Um, you know, I'd, I'd actually lost in court through a technicality, which was a loophole that was removed six months later from English law. 
there was nothing retrospective. So paying the £25,000 in lawyers' bills, um, it just became impossible for me to function. And so I said, I'm not doing this anymore. They sort of talked about giving me money for me to go silent. And I explained that, you know, that wasn't going to happen. I, I would not be bought off. Um, I, was, I had an offer and I have it. The, the guy perhaps didn't realize that I was recording the conversation when he made the offer. But the guy who was sent out from America to wipe me out, and he was, his was the ninth mission to do this, I was told. I was told they'd spent £2 million on me up until that point to silence me. But he, in a phone conversation, said to me, how would it be if um, a gallery owner signed you to a contract to buy paintings from you, which is what I actually am trying to do. And, you know, you just went quiet. And I, I swore at him, I admit it. Um, I was most unpleasant and discourteous to him. And that, you know, I'm sorry about that if he's, if he's watching. And if he wants to come around and have a cup of tea, I'll apologise in person. Um, but I went silent without being paid anything in January 1996. I just went, I can't keep doing this. In 2013, I realized that Scientologists simply were not recovering. You know, some, a few do, but there are these various cases. You have walkaways, people who just say, I don't want to do this anymore. And they just deny that it had any effect on them. You know, I saw it close up. My mother followed me into Scientology to see if it would be dangerous. And she liked it. So she spent eight years involved, quite independently of me. And it was noticeable that she was in her 50s when she got involved. It was noticeable that her personality changed, that she became more aggressive, more pushy. You know, and as you've known somebody all your life, you see them going through this. She'd be rude to my father. I'm not saying he didn't deserve it, but, you know, she would interrupt him and tell him he was talking rubbish or, or things that were just not naturally a part of her. And I then had the great good fortune of looking after her for the last 17 years of her life. And she, it, she changed. It gradually got less with time. And after about four or five years, she'd gone back to the person I remembered. And it's not to say that it completely took her over. It's just that there were aspects of her behavior that seemed aggressive and unnecessary. Um, the sense of entitlement, which comes with any authoritarian group, but Scientology has it in spades that, you know, we are, we have the way, the truth and the life. We, we, we know how everything works. You know, we are the, the masters of destiny. And if you put that into a salesperson's head, then, you know, the horror stories I heard, one of my favorites was, I'm going to name him, actually. I normally tell this story without naming him, but it's a guy called Jamie Dodwell. And um, he set up a company, this was in the early 1980s, putting this spray-on coating on brickwork on houses that was meant to be protective. And to save money, I, you know, my first wife worked, with, worked for him for a few weeks, but I knew one of the guys that was doing the spraying quite well and I'm a painter I know something about paint systems to save money he decided that he wouldn't use the primer 
So he offered a lifetime guarantee. And after a year, this stuff started falling off. And he then, I was told, got in, into an interview with Scientology. He'd given them, I believe, hundreds of thousands of pounds. And the question was, he would then have to deal with an ethics officer to, to see what to do. And the advice he was given was not to put his hand up and take responsibility for what he'd done. It was to leave the country and go to a country where he couldn't be extradited from. Because that way, Scientology could keep the money. Oh, my word. And you know, sales ethics, you know. I, I think that really highlights how um, unscrupulous Scientology is and... Um, and that just makes me think of like like the person who is allegedly a former Scientologist that is now an enagic robot from Canada whose name will go unnamed. But, you know, if you ever watched the show Bewitched in the 60s, um, Samantha was married to Darren. So maybe a similar name. I don't know. Allegedly. But um, allegedly. Rumor has it. But it does. It does. It's just, you know. So I've heard that, um, and now I forgot where I was going with this tale. Don't you love well, it when that it, happens? I, I, I think it's to say, we, we were talking about this before, that certain personality changes occur to people. And will they then keep on behaving in this way? And, and the answer is yes. The, the short answer is until somebody has actually faced what they did, and looked at better ways of behaving, they won't behave any better. And because Scientology particularly is a system of cloning narcissism. The other thing that Flavel Yakely found was that the personality type, he said, how are you five years ago? Answer from that perspective. How are you now? How do you want to be in five years time? And he found that the cloning became perfect. And what people are cloning on is the identity of the leader as they perceive it. Now, the identity of the leader in reality, I'm afraid, will always be quite opposite to what is displayed. So if you look at Sun Myung Moon, Sun Myung Moon was a rapist. He went to prison for it briefly and then was let off. But that's part of the basis of the moon is that he raped hundreds of women. Um, and that's acceptable to certain sociologists who will remain unnamed. Um, Rajneesh. Rajneesh was a junkie. Um, there's no doubt about that. Even Maranand Sheila, who loves him to this day, admits that, yes, he was taking huge quantities of diazepam and a couple of hits of nitrous oxide every day. In fact, it was said he'd spend two hours a day in a nitrous oxide trance. Yet he is put forward as Bhagwan, the supreme god, Osho the Buddha, and you've got this guy who's kind of going around like this. Hubbard, too, was a multiple drug abuser who, who drank heavily. Um, you have a situation where um, one of his personal servants says that she only once in a period of more than a decade saw him take a drink, and yet his liver was sufficiently gone that it was noticed by doctors at the end of his life that he had cirrhosis coming on, that you know, which comes from alcoholism. It doesn't mm. come from anywhere else. But it's also part of the concealment that he was able to put forward. So what happens is you join a group, you have an image of what the leader is like, 
if you've been around the leader, and I interviewed tens of people who work with Hubbard closely, then you'll take on his behaviours. The worst of them is what's called a severe reality adjustment. And that's where you go close to somebody and scream at them to break them down. Now, it is hidden from public Scientologists, people like me. I never saw it done in an organisation. I hired a guy who'd worked for Hubbard and he did it to my first wife because she hadn't made a sale for the week. He did this thing. And it's the only time I ever experienced it. Uh, I didn't see him for three days and I felt very guilty that I'd not gone in and stopped him doing it. Uh, but, but I was kind of going, you know, he was a very high ranking Scientologist over the years. You know, he's this incredible guy. There must be a reason why he's doing this. And the next time I saw him three days later, I sat him down and said, where's the training for what you did? Why, why did you do that? Um, and it, in Scientology, there's this little maxim that Howard gave us, if it isn't written, it isn't true. So you've got oh, wow. to be able to refer back to it. So I said, where's it written? And he said, it isn't. And then he put his head in his hands and started crying. And he said, Hubbard did it to us. All of us that were close to him on a daily basis, he would scream his head off at people and they will absorb that behavior. So you'll find those people who've actually been with the leader who will justify their bullying, psychopathic behavior because it's what the great guru did. But then you have people like me who would idealize the leader and imagine this wonderful, compassionate, friendly, decent person. When I found out he was a screaming maniac, I was done. You know, there's no way that I wanted to be involved with something that would clone me into that, because to me, anger is a contemptible emotion. It's not to say that we shouldn't feel indignant about things. Absolutely we should. But rage, where people lose control and start trying to psychologically destroy those around them, dominate them that's absolutely the opposite of you know what what i believe is is the right way to live but if you there's a thing with children that in dealing with second generation members often when you're dealing with somebody highly intelligent who's been in a group that was horrible towards them they can't trust their parents anymore their parents have become agents of the group and it means that they then have to hide things from their parents, um, as is the case with abusive parents of any kind. That So they start leading this double life. And it, it's not inevitably true, but I have met people who consider it perfectly normal to deceive everyone around them, including their own spouse, in, in one instance I'm aware of, for many years, because you've got to keep yourself safe. And... Uh, in this case I'm thinking of, the person actually had the most sincere reasons for being deceitful. You know, it was necessary to protect them during childhood and then as an adult um, so that they could in fact do something to help members of the particular group they belonged to. So they had to pretend that they didn't um, feel the way they did so that they could get in and do something. Deception creeps in very easily. Um, because we feel justified. There's a wonderful book called Why We Lie by a psychologist called Dorothy Rowe, who is a real breath of fresh air because she wrote this book when she was 82, I think. 
And she'd been disagreeing with mainstream psychology all her life by this time. But she does, she takes Richard Dawkins' meme idea and in a single page shows you that it's absurd nonsense. You know, of course, of course you can't, you know, have a mimesis that transfers over like the selfish gene into, you know, that we, we pass on ideas as if they were genetic material. It's a silly metaphor. It, it just isn't true. But she, in Why We Lie, explains that we all lie. Of course we do. Uh, to ourselves more than anyone else, hopefully. But that some people, it becomes a way of being. And if you are recruiting people all the time, then it means you've got to present the world in a way that's acceptable to maintain your authority, your authoritar. And so people become divided from themselves. They learn selling techniques, which displace caring techniques. They displace one's natural concern. So somebody, Scientology is, in 1993, I sat down with a, a friend and we made a list. He'd already got most of it, of how many groups had come from Scientologists. We found 200. And that would include some of the, you know, the well-known people like then Earhart, Jack Rosenberg, and Earhart Seminar Training, EST Forum, the Landmark, uh, Landmark Trust. Oh, I didn't um, realise they were from Scientology. He actually spoke quite openly oh. recently. Uh, I think they're, they're now the Forum or Landmark Trust, I don't even remember what they're called. But they threatened to, I'm told, they threatened to sue somebody for saying that Earhart had taken stuff from Scientology. But he said it in an interview. You know, it's not a secret. Darfree John who was a particularly vicious cult leader, was in Scientology. Um, Harvey Jackins, who founded co-counselling, which is actually Dianetics, and was used by the whole Open University, which is the largest university in the world in terms of the number of people doing it. And they just taught people to do this thing. And when I went to them and said, what you're doing is Hubbard's Dianetics, they said, no, no, it isn't. Jackins said that he never had anything to do with Hubbard. And I said, here's a picture of him receiving a certificate from Hubbard. And he then, they didn't, they ignored me. But a couple of years later, he was accused of child sexual abuse and they stopped using the technique. But people find something that they can use. Now, one aspect of Scientology that's almost never talked about is the registrar sales course. And it's a course that is normally only done by staff Scientologists because it's how to hard sell, how to make somebody buy something. And I know it because my wife was selling stuff. So we bought the course. We thought this will be great. And I remember seeing the check sheet and the stuff that, and realizing that for years, these people have been doing this to me. You know, that, so for example, they use a technique called the tag team where they actually have a microphone in the room without telling you, which is feeding to a loudspeaker in the next room. And when the right moment comes, the salesperson will come in and tag, you know, and just finding that these despicable deceptions were being worked on us in a group that the leader of which says honesty is sanity. The road to truth must be trod with true steps. And it's all, it's all deception. People come away from that and they take the culture with them. So Leah Ramini in her excellent book, Troublemaker, says you can take the girl out of Scientology, but you can't take Scientology out of the girl. Now, I did offer to take Scientology out of the girl, 
but and I received a very polite handwritten letter from her. But throughout Aftermath, the two seasons, they never touched upon how you take Scientology out of the girl. Now, I spent seven years after leaving working out how to do it and what went on and got to the point where anybody who would talk to me would change their mind about Scientology in a day. Everybody I talked to wow. over a period of several years because it's structured in a certain way to get people to behave uh, in accordance with Ron Hubbard's wishes. So in 2013, after you know 17 years away, I started writing about Scientology again for uh, the Underground Bunker, Tony Ortega, because I wanted to talk about what are the ideas that have been implanted? What are the behaviours that have been implanted as a consequence of this? And the reluctance that I met in ex-members was fascinating. That you know, by, by that time, my name was fairly well known because a piece of blue sky had been out there since 1990. And uh, Jesse Prince, who was in charge of all Scientology counselling, uh, for several years in the early 1980s, he he wrote that um, I think it had yeah it took him six years before he could open the cover of the book. Thank you, John, so much for joining me. Thank you so much for all of your time. If you have not checked out John's YouTube channel, I highly suggest you do that. It is called John Attack, Family and Friends. And what I love about his channel is that he provides bite-sized content as well as long form. And all of it is so very informative and educational when it comes to Scientology, when it comes to destructive cults, just, you know, just really all kinds of information that to me, it was, it's been so helpful in helping me kind of figure out what I went through when I was a member of, you know, Beachbody. And between you and me, when John came on, I fangirled a little bit because I have so much admiration for all the work that he has done over the years and really appreciate his effort to continue to help people heal from having been in a group that really, I mean, it did nothing for them that was really good. I mean, there's the perception, you know, when you join, like, oh, it's there, you're, you're getting something really good out of it, but it really just tears up who you are and changes you in a way. And once you get out of it, I mean, just trying to unravel all of that, it takes time. What about our talk, you know, gave you some insight to the group you joined or maybe someone you know who, you know, have us joined a group, just, you know, what really stood out to you? You know, let me know about that and make sure that you do the subscribe thing, you know, all the stuff that goes with that. If you enjoyed this content, that way you'll know each time I, you know, upload something new. And remember, change starts now.